You are a melody. I hear you all the time. It really gets to me. It's always on my mind. Hey guys, what's up? This is Dune here for Bartolo. My name is June Lee. Uh, on the show this week, we have Lindsay Adler of BuzzFeed. Lindsay is, uh, in my eyes, one of the most interesting uh, up-and-coming writers in the game today. Uh, she has done some really great features over at BuzzFeed and uh, has really carved herself out a, a pretty unique niche uh, looking at kind of sexual assault and, and women's issues uh, in 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 the world of sports, and given all of the events in the last calendar year regarding those kind of issues surrounding uh, football and just baseball and, and sports in general, uh, Lindsay has really kind of risen in profile, uh, and her work has gotten a lot of attention. And uh, she she is uh, the youngest writer that we've had on the show so far, and being a writer who is coming up in the industry today rather than Having already come up, uh, Lindsay provides some pretty unique perspective, I think, in just kind of what she views as the future of journalism and, uh, you know, being someone who who she says uh, owes a lot of her career and her success to, to Twitter. Um, and so she came from a pretty different perspective from a lot of the people that we've had on the show so far. So I think you guys are going to enjoy the conversation that we have. Uh, but before we get to Lindsay, uh, first a word from our friends over at FanDuel. With baseball season just around the corner and it's starting the Sunday, this year there's a whole new reason to play for one day fantasy baseball in FanDuel. FanDuel is the best way to experience sports, period. And if you think about it, you, your friends, the game, the adrenaline, now you don't only have a reason to watch your favorite team, but you can get to create your own as well. And baseball's never been this much fun with FanDuel. Play against your buddies or test skills against other players. And you can decide how often you want to play, whether that's every single day or just one time. FanDuel has contests for everyone ranging from the casual fan to the expert. And you can win money while you're at it. Fantasy baseball is one of my favorite things to do every single year. And really keeps me up to date on what's going on around the league. Have, you know, having to pay attention to players, not just on uh, on the Red Sox. So if you think you know FanDuel already because you saw a bunch of ads during the football season, think again. You have to experience the fun and the excitement to really, really get FanDuel. And you have to try it today. This is FanDuel, the best way to experience sports. Enter a FanDuel Elite now. And if you don't win any prize in your first contest, they'll refund your entry fee up to $10.00. Back to your FanDuel account so you can play more. Just deposit, play, and if you don't win, they'll refund your entry fee up to $10. Just go to FanDuel.com and use my promo code BARTOLO. That's FanDuel.com, promo code BARTOLO. And now, on to Lindsay Adler of BuzzFeed. Hope you guys enjoy. You are a melody. I hear you all the time. It really gets to me. It's always on my mind. You are my favorite song. Your love is just On the podcast today, we have uh, Lindsay Adler of BuzzFeed and of, of Twitter fame. How's it going, Lindsay? Pretty good. Pretty good. How are, uh, how are, how are things going in the, uh, you know, the, the New York, you know, journalist life? Um, it's pretty interesting. It's finally starting to get warm again. So I'm, you know, finding the will to live slowly. <laughs> Um, and I've somehow let a bunch of deadlines creep up on me with baseball season coming and, you know, with the NFL season coming. So that's fun. So I'll, I'll be busy. 
Yeah, no, I I feel like I completely skipped winter this week, this year because in Ithaca, like we just like haven't had any snowstorms, and now it's like seventy degrees, and it was never like ever below zero, which is super weird. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Wait, so is yeah, I'm, I'm thankful for it. Is is what is what is your your top sport then? Like, if you had to to do a ranking of all of them, um, baseball is the sport I enjoy the most, and I think I would say I know the best, but. Football is the sport that I would say I cover the most and has the most stories for me to cover um, in the scope of what I can do at BuzzFeed. How did you How did you find your interest in uh, in sports and sports writing growing up? Um, you know, I just sports are always something I've kind of loved. I grew up watching Niners games with my dad every weekend until I was a you know, sassy teenager and wanted nothing to do with hanging at home on a Sunday. But, uh, you know, and then my family has always been a big baseball family. My uh, my mom's side of the family is pretty evenly split between Giants and A's fans. And I just kind of realized that, you know, writing about sports allows me to write about so many things beyond the game in terms of, you know, gender, race, sexual orientation, health, all types of things that are really just human stories and, you know, sports is just like a ever regenerating fountain for that type of story to be told. Was there like a specific time where you realized that you wanted to go into to journalism? Um, no, not really. No. Um, I realized, I guess, the power of telling other people's stories and telling kind of universal and relatable stories. Um, I think had I not jumped into this, I probably would have tried to focus on essays. And that is a very tenuous career track, somehow even probably more difficult to manage than, than journalism. So uh, I think I saw the power in this and that was pretty good. And, you know, I'll be, pretty honest with you like I saw a lot of um, you know the columns about you know domestic violence sexual assault race and all of this type of stuff and that kind of propelled me to you know try to join in and write in an informed way so what at what point what was uh, I mean when did you see that like what what uh, I mean what was the time frame on this um I mean, it was it was it was a few years ago. So, how did you how did you kind of get your your start then in, in sports writing? What what kind of opportunities were you seeking out? Um, so a few two years ago, about two and a half years ago, um, BuzzFeed was seeking an intern to cover the intersection of women's issues and sports and. Um, I figured, you know, those are the two things I know and understand best. So, um, I went for it and I got the internship and I moved from San Francisco to New York and, uh, just kind of, you know, worked my way through here, was at Vice for a little bit and then I've been at BuzzFeed full time for about a year and a half. Mm Mm-hmm. 
what what I mean what since since you joined BuzzFeed what was I mean what were your expectations going into into that internship experience um you know I I don't my expectations I think were to I guess just do reporting that focused on a lot of gender and we had some you know newsroom shakeups we dissolved the sports desk um, shortly after I joined as an intern and, you know, there was kind of a lot of back and forth about which part of the company I would end up in. And I just, I pushed for news and I was fortunate to eventually be able to write news full time. And, you know, my editors really like me to explore still that, you know, uh, women's issues side of reporting on sports as well. Mm-hmm. What What got you into or what what particularly fascinated you about uh, reporting on women's issues? Because I because I consider you one of like the foremost voices in that realm on on sports Twitter. I mean, it's it's what I know. It's uh, a lot of it is based on my personal experiences. Um, I have a lot of <clears throat> interesting life experiences in that regard, and I think I think a lot of perspective on that stuff is hard to grasp if you haven't been kind of like intimately familiar with it and um so I think because of my background because of you know the things that I'm interested in I think I I knew that that was a place where my voice could actually add a lot of value versus know other areas of covering sports where I don't know as many people I'm not going to be doing you know transaction scoops I'm not going to go on to the analytic side of things I think um, you know it really showed me a place where maybe more women's voices were needed I mean I think women's voices are needed throughout sports and news reporting in general but you know, I figured this one was kind of an essential one mm-hmm. I mean what what have you what have you kind of gathered from being on the job over the last year? What have you kind of not only learned about yourself but learned about the industry as a as a whole? Um, it's a tough it's a tough industry, but people are generally willing to help you. Um, and I've found that you know straight reporting and <clears throat> being fair is you know, really the best way to go about these things because there's so, especially when you're handling sensitive topics, you know, regarding, you know, personal identity or, you know, sexual violence, like these things are very sensitive and you're never going to get, you know, a consensus on these things. And so just going straight forward and kind of, you know, using my, using an informed perspective, but still kind of running middle of the road, I think has been really helpful. I'm, I'm very glad um, that I started out with a place that, you know, my, my editors, my, the editor who hired me was a long time New York Times editor. My current editor was a long time Wall Street Journal editor. They have very, you know, hard reporting backgrounds and they kind of beat that into my head. And while a lot of you know, a lot of sports stuff over the past couple of years has veered a lot into, I guess I would say, takes, which, look, I'm, I'm very opinionated. Like, <laughs> if I could, I would, I would, 
you know, run in that direction, I think. And I think that I'm glad that I have editors who have kind of kept me on just a straight reporting track for now. Mm-hmm. I mean, what, uh, I mean, what have you, I mean, BuzzFeed's a, a really, at a really interesting place as a, as a media entity as a whole, just kind of, mm-hmm. I think, I think it, it takes up a very interesting place in, in, kind of the the media lexicon and what what people think of it. And there's obviously a very wide range of things that BuzzFeed does, um, you know, whether it's the reporting that you do or just, you know, listicles and, and that kind of thing. What have you taken away from working at, uh, you know, one of the, the, the foremost media organizations that people are thinking about on a daily basis um, and just, I guess, the BuzzFeed stigma, you know, saying saying that mm-hmm. you work for BuzzFeed? What have you taken away from that? Well, okay, so there's a lot. Um, it's a really big company with a lot of really brilliant people, and that is really, really nice. Um, I have a lot of support here. Our editors are super supportive, and most importantly, I've had the freedom and flexibility to explore you know, different types of stories, you know, different areas of coverage, and really just say, like, say to my editor, like, hey, there's a story in New Mexico that I need to get on a plane and stay there for a week and report this out. Or, you know, I need to rent a car and drive to this rural part of New England and report a story. And, you know, my answer is just always like, is this a story you think is worth it? Yes, do it. And I think that flexibility is something that is unfortunately pretty rare for young people in this industry. Um, I think, and, you know, that's something that has been really, really invaluable to me, being able, especially young in my career, being able to explore what I'm good at and uh, and honestly what I'm not good at and, you know, poke around that way. Um, because I am the only sports person, I don't kind of have that camaraderie of a sports team, you know, or a sports editor. Um, so that's kind of interesting and of course, I don't. I'm not working for a place that has built-in, you know, sources within the industry. Um, so I've had to build that myself, which has been fine. And yeah, sometimes people have talked down to me um, because they don't know what my company does or they don't respect what my company does. Um, the most egregious incident was when I was covering the Aaron Hernandez trial in Fall River, and there was a New York tabloid reporter who looked at my reporting notebook and said, BuzzFeed, are you going to make a listicle about this? And I just looked at him, and I was like, dude, this is a murder trial. Like, (laughs) no, I'm not going to make light of a murder trial. Like, don't be a dick. (laughs) I mean, what have have you – and you mentioned that – you it's given you the opportunity and the freedom to kind of learn what you're good at and learn what you're not good at what have you learned about yourself having been given that opportunity to to do those kind of things um what i've learned is that i would like to eventually move into features full time Mm-hmm. I don't think I have the experience and expertise to do that. I don't feel comfortable making that full-time job within this company right now, if that is or if it were an opportunity. But I think I really like sitting down with people, being able to, you know, really get a sense of where people are coming from, you know, 
talk to them for more than just a half hour. Um, I'm not good at really grilling people isn't really my strength, but relating to people is kind of my strength. And so eventually I think I would like to move more into that. But, you know, with, you know, with features and profiles and things like that, you have to, it's a lot of practice before you can really kind of get anywhere viable with it. Mm -hmm. I mean, where did you, at one point did you kind of figure out that that's what you wanted to do? Um, you know, really after the first few opportunities I was given to sit down with people and just talk and, you know, realizing the difference between, you know, covering an event, which I do find pretty fun. I, I generally like writing on deadline. I think it's actually easiest for me to write on deadline, um, in that sense, but, you know, really the experience of getting to talk to people beyond what my initial belief about a story or about the, about a story or about a person or something like that might be, um, you know, really what I do, even if I just have, you know, a short reporting trip, I try to at least spend a couple days, you know, with the person because, you know, you'll do reporting in the first day and then, you know, overnight there's always so much more that I'm thinking about and, you know, want clarification on. And I feel that the best, you know, the first thing I can do to somebody is get the most information so that I know how to properly represent them. And I really like that, you know, features and things like that allow me to explore that. So we'll get back to Lindsay in just one second, but at first for a word from our friends over at SeatGeek. Have you ever been frustrated trying to buy tickets online? Most sites make it really complicated. They sneak in these huge fees at checkout and that really jacks up the price at the end of the day. That's why you need to try out SeatGeek. They've made it easier than ever to buy and sell sports and concert tickets. With baseball season just around the corner, you want to make sure that you catch your team in the early part of the season. And SeatGeek is the only place I ever go to look for tickets to a, a game or a concert. SeatGeek has, has taken out all the work and hassle out of shopping for tickets. Uh, SeatGeek pulls all the tickets available on other seats into one place so you can save time and never miss a deal. You can even set alerts for upcoming games and SeatGeek will let you know if ticket prices fall. Even better, every ticket on SeatGeek is given a grade based on value so you can immediately find underpriced tickets. And before you buy, you can use SeatGeek's detailed maps to see the view from your seat. Best of all, SeatGeek is always honest and upfront about the tickets and its price. Unlike StubHub, SeatGeek shows you the full ticket price from start to finish and never surprises you with huge fees at checkout. Listeners to Doing It For Bartello can get a $20 rebate off their first SeatGeek purchase. So in order to do that, make sure to download the free SeatGeek app, go to the settings tab and click an add promo code, enter Bartolo as the promo code, and SeatGeek will send you $20 after you made your first ticket purchase. So make sure to download the free SeatGeek app, enter the promo code Bartolo today, and uh, help out the good people over at SeatGeek. And now back to Lindsay Adler. What is a, has there been a particular story or uh, something that you've covered that has been the biggest learning experience for you? Um, it's an interesting question. I don't know if I have something off the top of my head, but I can look. <laughs> yeah, I don't know if I really have anything off the top of my head for that, but I can think about it. 
what what is get back to you yeah i mean like what is what has been um maybe heading so i mean as a young writer um having spent mm-hmm. a couple of years in the industry what is something that you've learned about being a journalist that you might not necessarily uh maybe was a misconception for you at the beginning or just like didn't really consider or nor know about when you when you first uh, you know got into this uh i had no idea how difficult police departments are to work with. (laughs) Um, (laughs) I didn't, I guess I didn't, mm, that's kind of been a big one, that, that big frustration, but, um, something I might not have expected. I wouldn't have expected, um, how easily people, people will open up. Um, I think personally, I think even doing something like this is difficult. I think, you know, being on the other side mm-hmm. uh, is something that's kind of unimaginable to me. I can't really imagine opening up my life and, you know, telling it to someone else. And I certainly appreciate that people do. Um, but I think it's just really, yeah, I didn't expect people to open up in that way. And I'm, you know, I'm, very glad that they do. Like I said, you know, the more people open up, the easier it is for me to represent them well. But uh, I think it's I think it's pretty awesome. Mm-hmm. I think you you've uh, you've really done a lot of interesting work from my vantage point, uh, and there's been a variety of really interesting stories that have allowed you to um, cover cover things specifically from your unique perspective. Um, we, you know, with especially with like the Ray Rice trial and I think the Aaron Hernandez trial mm-hmm. and among many other things um, that you've covered over the last few years or so. Uh, what what have you kind of taken away from? I mean, it's been a pretty tumultuous time in general in sports in terms of just just legal things going on. What have you uh, having covered that? What did you kind of learn about yourself as a reporter going through those experiences? Um, be as thorough as possible. Um, you know, really, there's a huge responsibility to get things right, and I think I knew that, but I think it wasn't, you know, until I, what, needed a couple corrections early on or something like that, that it really beat into me how thorough you have to be and how... you know, how, how details matter when you're covering extremely sensitive things, you know, things like wording. Um, you know, I mean, it sounds stupid to say, like, that's literally my job is to be thorough. And as a writer, my job is literally to consider syntax and wording of things. But it's easy to just kind of delve into cliches. And I, I keep a list of, I guess, writing or sports writing cliches about sensitive subjects, whether it be, you know, gender, race, you know, sexual violence, things like that, that I think that I really want to avoid. And I think um, just being very deliberate in everything that's said, because you don't know who's reading it. You don't know what their experiences are and, you know, just avoiding harmful language and, you know, harmful ideas even in straight news reporting is um you know it's it's an everyday it's an everyday practice 
you know, with with these issues, I think something that's been interesting, just kind of as an outsider looking in, uh, has been watching how how's Twitter has handled all of these things. Mm-hmm. And I think you've been a very outspoken person uh, when it comes to these issues. How do you approach Twitter generally when it comes to, I mean, maybe just like in general, but like when it comes to these kind of sensitive topics, how have you approached Twitter and uh, being a voice on, on that platform? My answer to this would have been different. I think if you asked me a few months ago, um, I think right now I kind of, I mean, I am experiencing a lot of Twitter outrage cycle burnout, um, you know, something in which I've been very complicit in the past. But, um, you know, I think I just, like I said, my experiences, my perspective might be different than a lot of other people in the industry. And, you know, I, I feel that Twitter is a space to give it. I have, you know, learned so much from using Twitter as a tool to absorb different perspectives, experiences, you know, kind of see beyond my own lens of various privileges and things like that. And I think really in some ways the more perspectives you have out there, um, you know, the, the better it is for discourse. I don't feel that that is the reality of Twitter discourse at this point, and I'm actually not sure if it ever was. Um, but I, I think I think at its best, it's a it's a great tool to learn from others, and um, I think you know you, you never know you never know who who might want to consider something new or, you know, might not have looked at something, you know, a different way or might not have had experiences to even know to look at things. And so I see things like that all the time. And so when, I mean, I think most of this, most of the discourse around, you know, women's issues came in during the last NFL season, not the most recent, but the one prior, you know, and I just, I just felt that it, uh, if my perspective were to ever be of use, that that might have been the time. Mm-hmm. What I think, you know, Twitter is a really interesting place in where like you obviously get a lot of different perspectives from a variety of different people on however many issues are going on every single day. Um, but I think it's also an interesting community of people in that, you know, if I if I'm watching a game by myself and uh, I want to I want to like have a hypothetical, you know, group of people to hang out with to watch the game together like I just head on to Twitter and I think that's mm-hmm. it's also a, it's a there's obviously it's it's pluses and it's and it's minuses but I think I know for me like I generally view Twitter as a pretty positive experience um, but then again like I also don't go through a lot of the harassment that I see lots of female reporters going through um, and I think that it's Twitter's also been a platform for for those kind of people, those kind of terrible people to, to have their voice heard. Um, Mm -hmm. what has like, you know, I, I'm a male, so I I just like, am not ever going to go through this kind of thing on Twitter. Can you like, can you try to explain to me what it is like to use Twitter as someone who is female in the sports industry? 
Look, like, I'm going to be honest with you. Like, the thing that will drive me off Twitter is not the ultra harassment. It's not, you know, people calling the C word and, you know, people saying really gross, terrible things to me, as they sometimes do. Um, It's just this constant feeling that I can't say anything without somebody explaining it back to me or, you know, just jumping into, I mean, I mean, Twitter has a character limit. I can't, you know, expand my entire thoughts on a subject in a single tweet and people generally are not, it doesn't seem like people, uh, you know, it's not in good faith, I guess, that people expect that you actually know more than what you're able to say. And, you know, I mean, I don't know. Maybe I'm just an idiot. Maybe I'm a total dumbass. Um, I don't know. Sometimes being on Twitter makes me feel like I'm just the stupidest person in the world. Like, people cannot, like, people do not expect that I would have, like, a baseline understanding of what I'm talking about. I was at like recently I was at the uh, NFL Combine and I was in the media room and over the loudspeaker they, you know, said so-and-so of the Los Angeles Rams. And I tweeted, it's going to take a while to get used to hearing Los Angeles Rams. And I don't know, I tweeted it quickly. I kind of thought that the, you know, hearing Los Angeles Rams again was kind of implied. And, you know, the first thing is a lot of, I mean, maybe well-intentioned or whatever, people just being like, oh, you mean again? You mean again? You're really young. The Los Angeles Rams used to exist. And I was just like, you know what? Like, I know the Los Angeles Rams existed. Like, <laughs> I'm, I'm from California. Like, I know this. Why can't you just assume that, that this is a thing I understand? And I don't know, maybe I'm an idiot or maybe being on the Internet just makes me feel like one. Maybe it could be both. Like I'm, I'm willing to accept that it could be both. I, I don't, I don't necessarily think that it's, it's you. I think it's, I think it's a function of like people on the internet generally wanting to feel like they're in a position of power. Like there's, there's that thing in Borat where like Borat's like king of the castle and he's like singing, sitting in this chair. And I think that's like how people feel as if their keyboard feels like, like they feel as if they're on top of the world and they can be condescending to people. And I think that's just kind of a function maybe an inherent function with within the internet and that people think that they know more than other people. And it's hard to, when you're not looking somebody in the eye, it's, or, mm-hmm. or, or sitting in front of somebody to say something, it's much easier to be condescending and just generally not a good person. Yeah. And I don't think, I think what, I think what kind of makes me upset is that in general, the like explain back to me type of tweets that I get, I think, I don't think many of those are even meant to be condescending. Um, you know, but I know that if I said to someone in person, man, it's going to take a while to get used to, you know, calling them Los Angeles Rams, someone would say, oh, my God, I know. <laughs> you know, I mean, it's, it's kind of like a natural thing. Like right. a, an NFL team moved cities during the off season. Like it, you readjust, right? Um, and I think it's easy to just say something to someone online and not realize how many other people are, you know, kind of echoing that. And um, I think it's, 
I think it's not that I am frustrated by like individual experiences, but by the like by the waves of just like second guessing or you know explaining back to me, you know this this larger cloud of it, not individual instances. Mm-hmm. Well, I, I think just, I feel like I could I feel like I could tweet the sky is blue and somebody would just reply actually. <laughs> Do you think that's a function of of you being, uh, you know, a female in sports media? Or, like, what do you think that is? Do you think that's a function of just, like, being on the internet? Or, like, I'm not – I don't really yeah, have an answer I, to that. But, like, I, I'm just curious to what you think about about that. I, I don't actually think it's <laughs> – I don't think it's because I'm, I'm, I'm a woman. I don't necessarily think it's because I'm young. I think it's just, like, how the internet is, how the platform is set up. You know, like – I could be doing annoying shit to people all day on Twitter. And of course I probably do. And, you know, I just, I think it's something that's kind of inherent to the way that people use such like a fast paced, you know, platform. And, uh, I I don't think that's something that's going to change. What do you, what do you think it is about the internet that gets people to do that? Um, you know, I mean, I I want to reiterate that I don't think individual people are, um, you know, being deliberately obtuse or things like that. I think I think with something like I think with the internet, a lot of it is just volume. It's you know, it's, it's volume where you get a lot of similar types of discourse, and that can be very good, or it can be kind of kind of useless and uh I think it's just the the volume of discourse online and especially on a fast moving platform like Twitter kind of just lends itself to it and I don't think you know I don't think everyone who uses the internet or I don't think every person who annoys me on Twitter is like has uh you know bad intentions but mm-hmm. I think something that's interesting is that, like, of all the people, like, I, I've had mostly older writers uh, on the show so far, and uh, mm-hmm. I've been asking them about, like, how they've adjusted to Twitter, um, which is an experience that I can't really relate to because I've, I've come up, or, like, I, I've worked, I've, I've aspired to be a journalist in an age where Twitter has kind of been the only thing that you can even imagine. Um, mm-hmm. What is... How 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 do you think that you have taken advantage of Twitter as a as a platform um, to to speak your mind or just generally raise your profile as a writer or just like use it for for good intentioned well intentioned journalism purposes? How have you used Twitter um, to to maximize your potential or your ability as a journalist? You know, I I think Twitter has been unbelievably beneficial to me. I don't, you know, I'm sorry to all of our industry elders, but I am one of those people who I don't think would really have a career if not for Twitter. Um, But it's given me a voice. It's given me a voice that I wouldn't have had. Um, I don't, I don't look at Twitter as something uh, I mean, I don't, I don't 
care about how many people follow me. I don't care about who follows me or, you know, what, um, you know, what type of engagement my tweets get. I do notice, you know, the things that seem to resonate more with people are, um, you know, when I am speaking a little bit more seriously about kind of, I guess, the women's side of perspective on, um, not, not to say that women all think alike, obviously, but, <laughs> you know, just, just be, be a woman, a woman's perspective on a sports issue. Um, and I think, I think if anything, that's kind of what built whatever profile I may have. Um, I think that's kind of what people expect from me. Um, I just don't think I would have a voice without it. And I think you can look at a lot of other areas of Twitter and it's, you know, kind of the same thing, you know, look at, look at, um, you know, how powerful black Twitter can be because it's essentially, you know, a way for people whose voices have, you know, traditionally been left out of mainstream media to give themselves a voice and have power and impact that way. And I think you can kind of look at it, um, or I look at it from that perspective in a lot of different ways is that, you know, of course, like the more followers you have or whatever, you're going to have a louder, more amplified voice. But uh, in some sense, it levels the playing field a little bit. Mm-hmm. And I mean, wh- and what issues do you think that, uh, that, that Twitter has been um, most important for, for you expressing your voice? Um, what's, I mean, what situations over the last like couple of years have you seen Twitter been most important in, in expressing your opinion? You know, unfortunately, these various sexual assault, domestic violence issues, I think, um, I think, I think it's generally hard for people to understand that stuff if they haven't experienced that. And, you know, I think sometimes uh, victimology is something that escapes people. And really kind of recentering, I think, you know, my my focus, my perspective is always kind of on recentering the victim and the experiences of the victim and you know what it what it feels like to go through something like that and that you know sometimes the reactions do not make sense when they're just laid out in a news article um you know or on the stand or you know in dealings with police um you know why might a woman just take a settlement with a you know non-disclosure and just walk away well have you ever taken you know somebody who's been violent to you to court when they have a lot more power, money, resources, a higher profile? No, you know, I think it's, I think it's easy to make assumptions about the way women behave when they're victims or alleged victims of sexual and domestic violence. And I think it's just a lot more complicated than people make it seem when writing about it from a sports perspective. And, you know, I I come at it, all of my outside reading is, you know, about women, women's experiences, women's issues. And uh, 
I think that's really been uh, the area when, or the area where I guess I've had the most uh, input, I guess. Mm -hmm. I think that's, I think that's, uh, I think that's interesting. Um, but who, who are, who are some of the writers that you do? I mean, you mentioned that you do a lot of reading about this kind of stuff, but who are the, Mm -hmm. the, the writers that you read or look up to, whether that's, you know, in sports journalism or in journalism in general or outside of, outside of that as well? Um, let's see. What have I enjoyed recently? You know, there are so many women in sports media. Um, of course, Nina Kimes is a friend and hero of mine. Um, outside of... Yes, <laughs> yes, an early guest, right? Yes, episode two, which Damn. you can check out. Damn, Nina chance. was doing that before. It was cool. <laughs> <laughs> surprise, surprise. Um, let's see. Well, I recently... I would say... Oh man, this is why is this a hard question? Um, okay, I mean, in terms of online journalism, I would say Tanahasi Coates is probably the person I find most inspiring, not just from a standpoint of what he does now, but um, from a standpoint of how he came up in this industry. Um, you know, the, the dude couldn't get his together in high school, and the dude couldn't get his together early in his career, and you know, there's this, there's this interview from, I think, like, 2011 or 2012 where somebody asks um, the late David Carr, who was ta mentor at the Washington City Paper, you know, like, if he ever expected ta to be on this level. And Carr says something like, man, I wouldn't have expected it. The dude was bad with grammar, not great with names, and, you know, generally unfocused. And... The idea that somebody can kind of turn themselves around and become, I guess, what is it, one of America's foremost public in intellectuals, whatever the hell that means. Uh, I really enjoy it. I, I really enjoy his work, obviously, and I think it's important. But I really look at his career as kind of a kind of an example of, hey, man, anyone can get their shit together and do great things, and of you know, of course, his. You know, aspire, believing that everybody could be on Tanahasi's level is, you know, not what I'm getting at, but um, it's a good example of that, I think. And, um, I mean, of course, I read a lot of Spinum. Mm -hmm. I'm not actually a huge Joan, Joan Didion fan, mm -hmm. surprisingly. I, well, I think that would surprise a lot of people, but um, I just read a lot of, you know, nonfiction about women in generations prior to mine. Um, I read this really impactful book about um, the culture of adoption before Roe v. Wade and how women, you know, were just pushed away and, you know, sent into these homes and had to give up their children and, uh, you know, things like that. And I can't live those experiences. And, you know, learning more about the women who came before me, I think, kind of helps, helps me understand where we are now and kind of helps give a perspective on, you know, why certain things are handled the way they are. Mm -hmm. 
I mean, from from uh, from my perspective, I think you have a lot of interesting to say things to say about things that are very tangentially related to sports. Why was it sports that you chose to write about these kind of issues? Because I think not. I mean, these issues are applicable and affect people beyond just the the sports realm and the sports world. Well, I think they're very present in sports. I mean, I think you have so many different experiences with sports, and it's kind of like I said, it, it's an ever-renewing resource for, you know, stories about different types of people. And I think I think in a lot of ways, um, many sports fans might, uh, you know, could benefit from thinking in various ways about the athletes they love and the athletes they hate. And I think, I mean, sports fans get a bad rap of course, uh, but I feel like there, you know, are certain segments of sports fans who, you know, really just don't think beyond what's on the field and really don't think beyond their first impulses. And I think it's an area that has, I mean, it's such a huge part of American culture that you can kind of reach a lot of people and, you know, tell, tell good stories to a lot of people. Mm-hmm. What is it about, um, about journalism in general that gets you excited to, to be reporting these kind of things? It's fun. It's fun to, you know, hopefully have a positive impact on people's lives. I mean, I think, you know, even if, To have, an, to have a positive impact on people's lives who do not benefit from existing power structures, I should say. Um, I'm not trying to make executives' lives any more sentimental or cushy, I guess. Mm-hmm. Um, <laughs> you know, but writing stories about, or, you know, I wrote a story about a, uh, a kid in New Mexico, a Navajo kid in New Mexico, who was having a pretty great, you know, senior season. He wasn't he didn't have the benefit of great coaching, but he kind of had a lot of raw athletic ability and just plain size. And, you know, nobody was, nobody was coming out to look at him because it's pretty far out and you don't, you can't really understand how his stats are inflated. And, you know, his parents were very focused on school and the idea that football could be used to get him into school, which, you know, of course, kind of a common trope, but, uh, you know, people people reached out to me or to me and to his family and you know, things like that to get to get attention on the people in these games who, you know, want to make a positive positive difference, uh is nice. Mm-hmm. Uh so one last question for you. Something that I like to ask people mm-hmm. is where where they think that they'll be in five to ten years, uh, in terms of their place in sports journalism. Where do you, what kind of things do you want to pursue, and where where do you hope to be, uh, you know, in five to ten years in journalism? Oh God, I don't know if my, you know, I ask people this when I'm interviewing them too, but I always kind of wonder. Uh, you know, I've had a lot of people tell me that their jobs didn't exist five years ago. And I think I would probably say that. I don't think there was really a place for the work I like. Well, that's, that's, that's a total bullshit thing to say. That's not true. 
uh, I don't think I would have had a, a job in the in this industry five years ago, I guess. And um, so I don't know. I don't know. I hope to be able to keep pursuing bigger stories, more, you know, profile feature style, um, you know, in some, in some senses. I'm just happy to have a place in this industry, have a, have a stable place in this industry as a young person. And I'm kind of just thankful to not be out in the gutter, you know, to be able to not sleeping in the roll up to it. Yeah. You know, to, to be able to roll up to a press box and, you know, kind of have a job that is what every kid dreams of. And, you know, I guess I hope that in five years I'm able to still do the things that I find fun and important and, you know, not lose sight that at the end of the day, it's mostly just sports. Mm -hmm. No idea. I think that's a, I think that's a great sentiment to to end on. Uh, Lindsay, thank you for taking the time. I'll see you around at some Mm -hmm. point. Sounds good. All right. I'll see you on the internet. All right. Thanks, Jim. Bye. Thanks again to Lindsay Adler for joining the show this week. I hope you guys enjoyed the conversation that we had. Lindsay is uh, is really great. Make sure to follow her on Twitter. She's at Law, L-A-H, Law Lindsay uh, on there. And uh, she's, she's an absolute hoot. Uh, if this is your first time listening to the show, make sure to subscribe. Uh, on wherever you listen to your, your podcasts, whether that's iTunes or otherwise, make sure to leave us a rating on there as well. And uh, make sure to, to share the show with a friend. Uh, you can follow the show on Twitter at Bartolopod. You can follow me on Twitter at I am June Lee. And uh, next week we have Field Yates, uh, NFL insider from ESPN on the show. Uh, Field was absolutely awesome. You're going to make sure to want to subscribe to hear that conversation. So until next time, this is Dude for Bartolo. And I'll see you guys in the next one. See ya. Your love is simple, baby. You've been on my mind. Yeah, yeah. Since you're watching me, I do it all the time. Yeah, yeah. Since you say you love me, it's just a